So I come from a family of, of welders. My grandpa was a welder. Dad was a welder. And when my dad was first teaching me welding, uh, I was ignorant and slow. Uh, when I helped, there was a lot I didn't know about his technique and his next step and his plan with certain projects. And so for some time, I stood around and I watched. He'd have to remind me repeatedly what I should be doing next and preparing for next. But the more I grew to know him and his plan and how he did things, the better the welder's helper I became. And he'd say, now you're catching on, son. Similarly, the last two chapters of Acts have been the church catching on to God's plan. Chapters 10 and 11 focus on on the mostly Jewish church embracing the Gentile mission as as they come to know more, they come to know God more truly. He, He is a missionary God. He saves people from all ethnicities. His blessings have have fallen on Cornelius and his family and friends. And these Jewish Christians conclude, well, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. If God is doing this, who am I to stand in his way? See, now you're catching on, church. It was God's plan from the beginning with Abraham that in Christ all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. It's by knowing God more truly, it's by understanding God's plan more carefully, that we're going to catch on to our role in the mission as well. Today we get three snapshots of the church on mission. And these, these snapshots throughout the book of Acts actually reveal... Uh, patterns of what healthy participation in God's mission looks like. Uh, Sometimes the Great Commission is is so big. I mean, we think all the nations, baptizing all the nations, making disciples of all nations, so big that that we wonder, you know, what sort of splash can I make, really? But, But these snapshots depict... Some of the most basic ways that, that all of us can, can contribute. We got a few of them in chapter 2 and some in chapter 4. And, and, and now we're getting another one here. Specifically, the church witnesses, the church disciples, and the church gives. So notice first, the church bears witness to Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 19. It says, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. And this sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's because you've seen it before in chapter 8. Uh, Look at chapter 8, verse 1. There is a big persecution upon the heels of Stephen's martyrdom that scatters the church into Judea and Samaria. And then chapter 8, verse 4, adds this. Those who were scattered went about 
preaching the word. So it's like Luke's kind of reaching back in the narrative, picking up where he left off from this little parenthesis of chapters, uh, part of chapter 8, 9, and 10. He's reaching back and pulling this up, and his theological point is the same. Persecution can't stop the gospel's advance. The gospel is still going out. It is unstoppable because God's plan to save people from all the nations is unstoppable. So our witness will prevail because God's will is to save a people from all nations. A deficiency in our witness says more about the state of our own hearts than of God's power to advance the gospel. He's unstoppable in this mission. If we're quiet, he will move on and use others. But, I want you to be amazed at this, that he uses all his people to be his witnesses. Notice who God's witnesses are here. It's simply those who were scattered. So it's not the apostles. Most of them are still in Jerusalem. It's not even those other leaders in Acts who are regularly named, Philip and Barnabas and Silas and Paul and so forth. It's just an anonymous bunch of ordinary Christians. Persecution has has moved them around, but it can't keep them quiet about their Savior. So never think that evangelism is just the, the pastor's job or just the church leader's job. It's just limited to those who are really gifted in it. Evangelism is for the whole church. It's, it's for every Christian. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use everybody in the church. What you are determines what you do. You are his witnesses. We, therefore, witness to Jesus. Wherever we go, we, we share about Jesus, And that's what happens here. God uses them to advance the gospel across geographical and cultural boundaries. Geographically, their witness, it goes up uh, to Phoenicia, which is uh, the region north of Israel along the Mediterranean. Then you get Cyprus, which is a, uh, an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And then you get the city of Antioch, uh, which is modern-day Antakya in, in Turkey, close to the Mediterranean uh, border there, massive city during the Roman Empire. And this city, this Antioch, provides a setting for, for some to witness across cultural barriers. As the gospel is going out geographically, it's also crossing various cultures, and we see this in verse 20. So we, some were speaking with Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists. Also, preaching the Lord Jesus. ESV has a helpful little footnote there. It says, Greeks. Greek-speaking non-Jews. That's what these Hellenists are. So the gospel is advancing to those in a Greek culture, just like it was in a Jewish culture. And the whole goal is, is their salvation. It says in verse 21 that a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is why 
we witness. Okay, our goal in evangelism is conversion to a person. To the person of Jesus Christ. Out of sin to the person of Christ. And we want people to know the Lord and we want them to experience His grace. If you were in Membership Matters this morning, we want others to worship the Lord. That's the goal in evangelism and missions. Yes, we warn them of the terrible consequences of sin in this life and in hell. But our goal in evangelism isn't just rescuing people from eternal fire. It's getting others to satisfy their soul with the bread of life. He, Jesus, is the goal of our witness. We offer Him to others. As we continue reading the book of Acts, you're going to see this pattern continue. Witness was the rhythm of the early church, no matter what they faced. If the church is bold to proclaim Christ in the face of persecution, how zealous should we be to proclaim Christ with all the freedoms that we have? Witness needs to become our rhythm as well. Just like Bible meditation and prayer and hospitality are rhythms in the Christian life, so should evangelism be a rhythm. The church doesn't grow by building programs and website designs. It grows by people sharing the gospel, preaching Jesus. Wherever we go, let's be praying for these opportunities to witness. It could be at home. It could be with family members. uh, it, It could be at work. Let's be attentive to people's need for Christ and speak in ways that turn others toward him. A healthy church bears witness to Jesus. The next snapshot, snapshot we get is, is the church disciples one another by exhortation and teaching. The church disciples one another by exhortation and teaching. So missions doesn't stop with conversion to the Lord. We have to continue to encourage each other to, to continue walking with the Lord. That requires exhortation and teaching. So notice how Barnabas exhorts the church in verse 22. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. We need to just underline that as a a church, Uh, especially... A lot of us who are millennials, like cynicism is like the millennial banner, this attitude of cynicism. Um, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. He was happy. This was happening. He wasn't callous and suspicious of it. He was glad. So we see joy flowing out of Barnabas, when he witnesses the grace of God, we need to open our eyes to the grace of God. And it says, from this joy, he exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
We've met Barnabas before. Once again, he's living up to his name. He's a son of encouragement. And the grace of God brings him great joy. And from that joy, he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord. And notice also that it's the Spirit compelling Barnabas to talk this way to the church. So he's speaking from joy and by the Spirit. And pay attention. He doesn't show up, see the grace of God... And say, God's got this, I'm out. Back to Jerusalem, where it's comfortable and I know people already. No. He knows that grace makes perseverance possible. And so he, he, he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord. God inspires... This is a spirit speaking through Barnabas. God inspires exhortation as a means to keep his people persevering in the faith. So you you know that temptation is sin. You feel it every day. You feel the, the pull of this world. You've tasted certain pleasures the world offers, and they just it feels so good until you're dead. We've seen people walk away from Jesus, choosing their own passions instead. Just this week, I was telling my kids at the, the breakfast table, the, reading, reading through Mark, I was telling them the parable of the four soils. You know what happens in soil number three. The seed falls among the thorns. These represent the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And the desire for other things. And it says it, it chokes out the word. I mean, they look, they look like they were believers for a while. And it chokes out the word. They're not real. This is no joke. I mean, if we don't remain faithful to the Lord with, with steadfast purpose, we prove that we're not truly Christ's. And we... We need exhortation to persevere. We need people like Barnabas that speak into our lives like like the writer of Hebrews speaks. Have you read Hebrews lately? You can just see him, hear him pleading with his brothers and sisters. Pay close attention to what you've heard lest you drift away from it. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's talking to Christians here. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done all the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You have categories like this in your mind, Christians. This is how Christians talk to one another. Barnabas sees the grace of God. He's like that writer of Hebrews. 
he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Healthy participation in the mission involves exhortation to persevere in our, in our walk with Christ. A church that's full of the Holy Spirit will be full of exhortation and full of a desire to want the exhortation when it's given. Because there's nothing we need more than Christ. He's, he's too precious and hell is too painful to let each other just, just walk away without concern. That's why you, you see the apostles. Like something's going down in this church over here. Get Timothy on the road. We've got to find out what's wrong. Get there. I want to report what's going on. They need help. And he's coming in and he's telling them, flee sexual immorality. Glorify God in your bodies. He's exhorting them. That's the kind of attitude we need to have. As Jesus put it, it's only those who persevere to the end that will be saved. So exhortation is one side of discipleship. Teaching is also an important part of discipleship. Exhortations come built on the teaching and the equipping that's going on in the the church. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 says we must teach disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded us. And here we see Barnabas and Saul teaching. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a, a great many people. Gosh, have you got this flexibility? Give somebody a year of your life and, and teach them to know God. What might, what might that teaching include? We don't have to guess. That's why the letters follow the book of Acts in your New Testament. We get exactly what they taught the churches. There's perfect examples of the type of teaching churches needed. And you got the apostles and they're coming on. Like Ephesians, for example. Three chapters. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Here's all the truths. Chapter 4, 5, and 6. Here's how they apply. Boom, boom, boom. To your marriage. To your wife and kids. To, to, to slaves and masters and whatever else is going on in these relationships. And they're just, he's just applying them here. This is the type of teaching that was going on. So when the church exhorts and teaches, the Spirit, over time, makes us more like Christ. And the type of life we start living is such that people outside the church start noticing. Because uh, that's what happens here. Look at the verse, the end of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Two other places in your New Testament. One is on the lips of King Agrippa. Another one is in Acts 26. Another one is in 1 Peter 4 with persecutors. And the other two places where Christians, the word Christians, shows up is on the lips of unbelievers. And... 
It's also the case that there's no historical record of the word Christian being used by a Christian until late 2nd century. So it's very likely these, it's, the, it's the unbelieving world who are pointing at these people over here. Christians start name-calling. Jesus freaks. Let's go back to DC Talk era. Right? There ain't no disguise in the truth. Let's see it. Thought I'd get a oh, oh, oh. So, so what the world is calling them because they see a difference. So we should pray that our exhortation, that our teaching would so transform this church that we start impacting the people around us. We so speak like Christ and live like Christ and think like Christ. People can't help but notice that Christ is everything to us. It's the first thing they notice, perhaps. That we're not just Christians in name only, but we're Christians because our lives are, are, are actually giving tangible evidence that Christ is, the risen Christ is living in us. Uh, then we get a third snapshot. We see the church gives generously to meet needs. It gives generously to meet needs. This is uh, verse 27. We see some prophets show up from Jerusalem. And uh, we should freak out about this. This is uh, in fulfillment of Acts 2, uh, where Peter says the Spirit, God is going to pour out His Spirit on the church. And your sons and your daughters, they're going to prophesy. Boom, you got some prophets come down to the church. And it says at least one form of prophecy was this insight to the future by Agabus. There's going to be a famine. And Luke adds a little historical note for his readers that it was is the one that happened in the days of, of Claudius. Agabus, therefore, was speaking true prophecy. What he said came, it actually came to pass. It happened. Luke's reminding them where when it happened. Everybody knows, the, the, one, the one in the days of Claudius. People know exactly what he's talking about. So then verse 29 adds this. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now we could make some very practical observations about their giving. They did it together. They made a plan ahead of time. They heard about the famine. We better start putting money away. Uh, Also another practical point, they're not creating new needs by giving to meet other needs. Right? So that's not, not creating needs by giving to meet other needs. It says each one gives according to his ability. There's a lot of freedom in that. According to his ability. Some have the ability to give more, others less. That's okay. They also choose trustworthy men to carry the gift to those in Judea, Barnabas and Saul. But there's a lot more going on than just those, those, those practical observations there. There's a bigger picture because already Luke has given us two other examples where the church is giving. 
and they're important. One happens in Acts 2, one happens in Acts 4. People believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the first fruits that you see uh, for, for people who believe the gospel is this, is this open-handed generosity toward one another. But there's a few differences between this account of giving and the other two in Acts 2 and 4. And this is where Luke's theological points start standing out about the sort of gospel we have. So those, those earlier examples happened among Jews only in Jerusalem. And this giving happens by the church in Antioch, which had both Jews and Greeks. Meaning, the gospel is powerful enough to change people from all backgrounds. The gospel makes them one in this generosity. And even more significant, you have the church with Greeks in it who are sending relief to Jewish brothers and sisters. So meaning the gospel produces a kind of generosity that shows no favoritism based on ethnicity or culture. And then also, the earlier examples happen between members within the same church community. And this giving happens between churches in different cities. Which shows that the gospel actually unites Christians across these geographical and cultural Boundaries so that they care for one another. There's, there's solidarity. Churches aren't competing. They're not envious of one another. They're just partnering to meet needs. Oh, what it would look like for larger, wealthier churches to share resources with more impoverished churches nowadays. Every week we pass the offering plate uh, here at Redeemer. Um, and I know that many of you give even, even outside of that, of that time on Sunday. But, but this is the time that we, that we normally give together. When you give to this church, you're giving to support this, this much larger mission that we're seeing unfold in, in the book of Acts. When you give, you're giving to support the advance of the word here and, and discipleship here. You're giving to support other local ministries outside this church and several missionaries from the church. Uh, some of our budget even goes to a cooperative program where, where other churches are partnering together to fund agencies like the IMB and the seminaries and SBC Disaster Relief, which is in Houston right now, giving out meals. In Florida, the offering plate isn't just a formality. It's it's one way we encourage one another in worship. Passing the offering plate is not some guilt trip. You see some of these guys, come on, just kidding, nobody does that here. 
No, it's part of our worship. We, we enjoy giving together. It's, it's thrilling to even look around and see other people giving. Maybe even giving at times when you can't. An important mark of maturity as a church is, is whether we're generous toward others in need. And that's one way we, we give together here. So we get these three snapshots, witnessing, discipling, and giving. These snapshots, these snapshots reveal patterns of what healthy participation in God's mission looks like. All of us can participate in these three basic ways, being faithful with all the Lord brings us. But I can't end there because I've skipped a major point throughout Luke's portrait of the church. And that major point makes all the difference in the way we're going to leave today with these three things we've, we've talked about. You see, we must leave today depending wholly on the grace of God to do these things through us. These Christians aren't witnessing and discipling and giving in their own strength. Rather, these healthy patterns grow by the grace of God. God's powerful grace is what's enabling the church's mission. You may have caught it yourself. There are several ways Luke emphasizes God's grace. I want you to notice it first in verse 21. It says, The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord. What's that mean? God's invisible. The hand of the Lord. You see this idiom quite a few places in the Old Testament. In the Exodus, it referred to to God manifesting his his supernatural power when he struck the Egyptians uh, with with plagues. You see it in forms of judgment in the Old Testament. Uh, I was reading in Joshua 4, 24 this week. The Lord dried up the Jordan River and the Red Sea, it says, so that all the peoples of the earth might know the hand of the Lord is mighty. So in that case, God manifested his supernatural power in salvation. See, judgment and salvation. Salvation is more of what we're seeing here. For God's hand to be with them here was, was for his power to be working for them. It's going to come up again later in Acts where Elemis the magician and the hand of the Lord strikes Elemis the magician in judgment. But here it's blessing for God's people. His power is working in their favor. All that was happening, the witness, the, the witnessing and the, and the conversions, God did it all. It was by the hand of the Lord that was with them. Uh, notice also what Luke says uh, Barnabas saw in verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. What did he witness? The grace of God. Now, grace in itself is invisible. What do you mean he witnessed? He saw it. Well, he witnesses the visible outworking of grace in the conversion of the people in in Antioch. Conversions, repentance, vocalized faith, sees a guy getting baptized, grace of God. People following Jesus instead of their old ways, grace of God. 
So people don't convert themselves to Christ here. God is converting people to Christ. Barnabas can see the change. Makes him glad. Notice also the end of verse 24. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Were added. That's what you call a divine passive. God added them to the Lord Jesus. Again, His powerful grace stands behind the success of their mission. We might also say that God's grace is also what leads the church to be generous. Luke doesn't mention it here. He doesn't always mention what's behind it in, in, in every occurrence. But it seems implied by the pattern we saw early, by the pattern of giving that we saw earlier in Acts, uh, and it's, it's explicit as can be in Acts 4.33, where it says, the grace of God was upon them all. This is where they're giving to, to meet each other's needs, so that no one had needs. And the point is that grace was doing this. Grace compelled the church's generosity there, and it makes sense that that's what's going on here as well. It's also implied by the uh, pattern of giving in other churches planted and taught by Saul, by Saul or Paul. 2 Corinthians 8-9 is the clearest example where Paul is exhorting the church to give to the poor in Jerusalem. And he, and he motivates them with this word. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give your money to the poor guys in Jerusalem. For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So when that grace converts your heart, you give when you see needs, as you're able. So all that to say that this witnessing, this discipling, and this giving didn't happen on their own. God's grace was at work. The power driving the church's mission is God. We might say God is the chief evangelist in this picture. God is the chief church planter in this picture, causing the growth. And God is the most generous giver as He gives up His only Son for our sake. So the church's witness, discipleship, and giving was a window through which we need to see the grace of God at work. Remember, this is what the book of Acts is about. The Acts... It's the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. What he did in his earthly ministry and what he continues to do through his church. It has happened before in missions when God moves on a particular people in a miraculous way. Hundreds come to know the Lord through one church's ministry program or or one guy's evangelism method. And people are glad and excited and rejoicing. Churches are being planted and growing. And then all of a sudden we Westerners get this idea like we can just copy that program. We can just copy that method. And the results will be guaranteed. And you know what we do? We write books about it. We publish them. We put them on shelves at Lifeway and other Christian bookstores. And people buy them. And they go back to their churches. And they're implementing all the stuff. And nothing's happened. And they're frustrated. Throw that book away. I'm going to the next one that was published ten weeks later. 
all the while forgetting it's grace that did it all. Now, those methods and the strategies and the programs might be helpful. We might learn things from them. But we cannot so depend on them that we forget grace. We can't start placing confidence in programs and methods instead of grace. We can't fall into that trap. Our confidence must rest solely in the grace of God. And history will tell the grace of God is pretty unpredictable. It saves in some of the most radical ways and unexpected times. This grace is what makes people bold witnesses for Christ. This grace is what helps us to exhort one another. In truth, this grace is what will compel us to give generally, generously to others. Yes, we strategize and we act This takes effort and intentionality and sacrifice, but at the end of the day, all the glory belongs to the Lord for for giving us the grace to do it to begin with. What does Paul say? Paul says this, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. So as you go home and, and you evaluate your contribution to the mission as you evaluate what your witness looks like to the lost and what your exhortation and your discipleship and teaching of one another looks like and and what your giving looks like, I want you to remember how dependent you are and we are on God's grace to actually work these things into our body. So, begin with prayer. Begin with prayer as you're thinking through these things. Prayer for His grace to change you where it needs to be changed. Cry out for the hand of the Lord to be with us and to be mighty among us. For God to manifest His power through us. So that not only will, will we grow in the faith, grow in looking more like Christ, but that so others too might, might turn to the Lord.